Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Dr. Nate Callender, an associate professor of aerospace, was honored with the Outstanding Teacher Award in 2015 and Outstanding Honors Faculty Award in 2018, but he's here with us to talk about his attendance at the USA branch of International Christian Embassy Jerusalem's annual conference, May 24th and 25th in Murfreesboro. The organization's website says the meeting was about the book of Genesis and God's plan to redeem and restore all things evident in the restoration of Israel. We'll talk with Nate about the confluence of science and religion and what both of them mean to him after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The MTSU historian who's made a career of helping preserve significant landmarks around the country and teaching others to do the same is adding his myriad talents to the National Historic Landmarks Committee. Dr. Carol Van West, director of MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation and Tennessee State Historian, was appointed March 30th by Mary Pope Hudson, the chair of the National Park Service Advisory Board. The National Historic Landmarks Committee is part of the National Park Service. Its plaques designate sites ranging from archaeological digs to homes and hospitals, businesses and schools around the country. As a member of the Landmarks Committee, West will meet twice a year with the group's 14 members, including Chair and Park Service Board member Joseph Emmert, to review and recommend nominations for the National Historic Landmark designation to the board. And since K-12 students can't go to their classrooms, MTSU will help provide parents with the tools to conduct a classroom in your living room. The College of Education, with technical assistance from the Center for Educational Media, is producing a podcast series designed to assist parents trying to keep their children's minds on learning during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tricia Murphy, the college's development director, said she thought others would benefit from her colleagues' knowledge while learning what she's experiencing having a young child at home. The podcast can be heard weekly on Apple, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud, and in the near future will be available on Spotify. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Nate, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Some people who don't believe in the existence of a higher power are tolerant and open-minded, and others think that all people of faith, regardless of what that faith it is, are dense and anti-intellectual. And then there are some people of faith who are tolerant, but others who think that people who disdain the concept of a higher power are elitist. So how did we come to a state of affairs in which some people who believe in science and some people who believe in faith, present company accepted, are so far apart. Because you obviously operate in both worlds, and to you maybe there isn't uh, this world of science and this world of faith, but it's all part of the greater whole. I do prescribe to the belief that as a Christian, God is responsible for all of known reality, and that includes the evidence from science. It includes faith. It includes everything. So if I were to separate my beliefs of God from my practice of science, I would be doing a disservice to both, and I would be dishonoring the God who I think is responsible for all of it. I actually have given another talk as a part of the College of Liberal Arts 
lifelong learning program on God and science. Do the two work well together or are they separate? We have a rich history in the field of science of Christians who saw no problem with their belief in God, specifically in Jesus Christ, and their practice of science. And actually, the leading scientists throughout history have been believers in God and had no issue with their faith and their science. If you were to give a ranking of who do you think is the greatest scientist, the most well-known scientist, Isaac Newton would be at the top of most everyone's list, near the top anyway. He was a believer. When he developed physics, when he developed um, calculus along with G.W. Leibniz, not with, but at the same time, kind of they both co-developed the, the field, and they had no issues with their science and their faith in God. And actually what I believe is that more, the more science we do, whether that's in sciences like physics or chemistry, or biology, or archaeology, or mathematics, or philosophy, the more work we do, the more we can actually see the fingerprints of God on the universe. How do you feel about people of faith who believe that it's all a matter of faith, Mm -hmm. taking the existence of God on faith, and that belief is the point, and that you shouldn't try to prove it scientifically or justify it scientifically or bring science into the whole picture? When we say proof, when we say that we're proving something, the only field that we know of where there are 100% certain proofs is mathematics. So when we say we're proving something in science, what we really mean is we're showing the reasonableness that we can believe in something. So we're showing there's a very high probability that this is the state of affairs. This is a reasonable assertion. That is correct. Beyond a reasonable doubt, you can believe this or you can believe that. Even the laws of nature aren't laws in the sense that we think of prescriptive laws, like thou shalt stop when you see this red octagonal sign. They are descriptive laws. That just means we observe this to happen in the universe. We really never see it disobeyed, so we call it a law. So it's only a descriptive law. But it could be broken at some point in time. That's not outside the bounds of natural laws. But what I would say to believers or anybody who would think or characterize, caricature a Christian specifically, because I am a Christian, as being someone who lives out a blind faith or you shouldn't have to have evidence for something, is that Scripture is full of evidence. I believe God inspired the Scripture. He gives us evidence for his working in the world from the very beginning where Genesis states that he's responsible for it all the way to the end in the book of Revelation where he's going to wrap it all up and make things very different and new at the end of time. All of written scripture is evidence to support our belief in him. If you look at some of the gospels which speak directly to the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a a historical figure, those books say specifically the gospel of John, these things are written so that you may believe. We have very much an evidential faith. Our faith is not blind. We are to base it on evidence. Now, there are certain things where evidence stops and faith must fill a gap, but that's in everyone's belief system. Even atheists must live on faith in something. We'll take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk about the speech that Nate gave at the conference, uh, the podcast of which is available online. This is MTSU on the Record. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. 
ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Nate Callender, an associate professor of aerospace, is our guest. He spoke at the USA branch of International Christian Embassy Jerusalem's annual conference here in Murfreesboro, May 24th and 25th. In your your speech, you discuss the Kalam cosmological argument for the creation of all that is. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Is there a way that you can synthesize that for a general audience? I mean, you spoke to the conference for about an hour, and we don't have anywhere near that amount of time. So without asking you to dumb it down, can you give us the Reader's Digest version? Yes, ma'am, I can. And it's actually a very simplistic argument. So just to back up a hair, um, we can use philosophical argumentation to lay out a case for some conclusion that we would like to draw, some particular point of view. So the Kalam cosmological argument is one of many philosophical arguments for the existence of God. An argument does not mean that we are being argumentative. It does not mean I'm bickering with somebody. A logical argument is simply a set of statements, the first of which are premises. The final statement is called the conclusion. So if you follow the rules of logic, if you haven't uh, committed any known fallacies, any logical fallacies, and if the premises are more likely true than false, then you are guaranteed that the conclusion is the more probable view. You can, you can rely on the conclusion. So the Kalam cosmo- cosmological argument, uh, first proposed by an Arab theologian, al-Ghazali, has been more recently propounded and, and laid out very clearly by modern Christian philosophers and theologians, the the most notable of which is Dr. William Lane Craig. And the current statement of the Kalam cosmological argument is in three statements. The first of which is that everything that has a beginning has a cause. The second premise is the universe has a beginning. And then the conclusion, the third statement is that therefore the universe has a cause. And then there are lines of experiential and scientific evidence to support the truth of the first two premises. And once you're comfortable with that, the conclusion is guaranteed. It does not specifically state, as I said, it doesn't say God anywhere in the statements, in the argument itself. But if the universe has a cause, then you would evaluate what are the possible causes for all of time, space, matter, energy, all of reality, what could be the possible cause? And God, very quickly, the definition that we typically use of God, rises to the top. Therefore, it's a, an argument for God's existence. You also talked about the concept of infinity. So is Buzz Lightyear deluding us when he says to infinity and beyond mm-hmm. in, in Toy Story? <laughs> he's either delusional himself uh-huh. or he's just using a figure of speech. So tell us about uh, infinity, the concept of infinity, as, as uh, both a professor of aerospace and as a Christian. The reason why infinity came up in the talk, I like to point out 
a characteristic of God. And just to, to give an overview of why we're getting to infinity, the three main areas that I discussed in this talk were to w- work in with the title of the conference, which was Beginnings. Mm-hmm. And really the reason I was invited was to talk about beginnings from a scientific and philosophical viewpoint, the beginning of the universe, mm-hmm. namely via the Kalam cosmological argument. But I began with how to begin speaking with people. As a Christian, believing the truth of Scripture that God wants all people to come to know him. And as a Christian, one of my responsibilities is to share him with people, to tell people about Jesus and the forgiveness, the love, the salvation that he offers to everyone, how to begin dealing with people, how to introduce people to him. I started with that, then went to the beginning of the universe as laid out by the Kalam cosmological argument. Then, if God is the beginner of the universe. The third thing was to discuss, well, what are some other characteristics of this beginner? What's he like? Because as a Christian, we have many different words in the Christian faith to describe God, like omniscient. He's all present. You know, he's not physically in any one location. He can be ever present everywhere. He knows you. He knows me. Omnipotent. And that is the one that brings us to infinity. So we, we use infinity to describe how much power God has. In the beginning of the universe, as is supported by scientific evidence, the current model of the universe called the standard model is that everything came from nothing. It's typically called the Big Bang. The scripture affirms that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He spoke everything into existence. So we've got all of reality that did not exist. And then it exists. All of time, all of space, all of matter, all of energy are coexistent at the beginning before which there was nothing. If we want to know how much power God has, we can look at the definition of power, which is a change in work over a change in time. Work and energy are equated, so very quickly we get to a change in energy over change in time. Mm -hmm. Energy being one of the things that God infused into the universe at the beginning. Big Bang, so science says all of these things came into existence at the same time. So you can even remove God from the picture if you're uncomfortable with that. All of the energy of the universe coming into existence. Even if you dole out small amounts of energy at the beginning and the energy somehow comes from somewhere unknown, energy is in the beginning. Coexistent with energy is time. Without either one, the other one didn't exist. So you have time and you have energy coming into existence at the same time. So that means energy came into existence at the same time that time began. So the amount of time that it took for that to happen was no time Mm -hmm. because they began at the same time. So the clock did not start ticking, you could think, until time began. So you've got energy coming into being in zero time. But if the definition of power is energy over time, a change in one over the change in another, that means you've got a certain amount, a finite amount of energy divided by zero amount of time. And we all know from mathematics, dividing by zero is a big no-no. Mm-hmm. Calculators don't handle that well. We would say it's undefined, but actually it's got a pretty good definition. If you consider a container that holds, let's say, 10 gallons mm-hmm. and a smaller container that holds two gallons, you can fill water in the two-gallon container and pour it into the 10-gallon container. Now you've got two gallons. Do the same thing again. Now you've got four. And you could imagine how many times does it take to fill up the 10-gallon container with a two-gallon container. It takes five times. That's division. Ten divided by two is five. Well, now let's dump the big one out. We keep the smaller container empty as well. It has zero in it and dump it in. Mm-hmm. And then you dump it in. And then you dump it in. How many times can you dump in zero into this big container before you fill the big container up? Infinite. Something, a finite number divided by zero, 
is infinity. Therefore, if energy came into being and zero time had elapsed, then the amount of power that it took to do that infusion of energy is infinite. So we would say that the beginner of the universe has infinite power. That's the word we translate, or we say, omnipotent. The creator is infinite, but that doesn't mean the universe that, that was correct. created that is, is necessarily The infinite. things of the universe, Jenna, that we talk about are time, space, matter, and energy. Basically, all of the universe consists of those four properties. Any one of those is finite. There are arguments for the finite nature of everything that is real. However, power is simply a ratio of two of those things. Mm -hmm. So the ratio of energy to time or work to time being simply a ratio of two, it itself could be infinite, but that doesn't mean that the individual parts are infinite. The individual parts are finite. The ratio of the two can lead to an infinity such as the omnipotent, all-powerful nature of the beginner of the universe. We have had professors here before, and still do, who have gathered together to discuss science and religion, with the main premise being they're both legitimate prisms through which to view everything that we have in life and that we're wasting our time as a society looking down our noses at each other because some of us emphasize the science more than the religion, and some of us emphasize the religion more than the science. Is that fair? No, I definitely think that's fair. I think both sides are weakened when we discount the other view. Polarization of those two is very unhealthy. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responded, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said, you are to love God with everything that God has equipped you with to include your mind, your intellect. God never intended for you to put your critical thinking skills on hold. That is correct. We'll take another break here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Nate Callender is our guest. He delivered a speech uh, at the USA branch of International Christian Embassy Jerusalem's annual conference, May 24th and 25th, was when that was held here in Murfreesboro. In the beginning of the speech, you said that humans have tried to mimic what they have seen in nature, especially when it comes to flying or being able to fly themselves, create flying machines, mm-hmm. that whole history. Does the feeling of human flight verify for you the existence of God? Mm. Because some people, when they're up in the clouds in a glider or jumping out parachuting or something of that nature, feel that they're in closer proximity in their souls to what God is all about for them. The earliest dream that I remember as a child was running on the beach and putting my arms out Mm -hmm. and running faster, and then I was flying. And uh, I hang glide. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's very much what hang gliding is like. I would connect any enjoyable experience in life, whether it's flying or getting a runner's high if you like to run or success in some area can bring you closer to the God of the universe. Mm-hmm. I would say that flying, there's a lot of imagery in Scripture about flying and in the Psalms, talking about mounting up on wings like eagles. Mm -hmm. He uses that to talk about God's power and protection. In the end of time, as described in the book of Revelation, said that he will lift believers up and will meet him in the air. So in a sense, I believe literally we will be flying at some point in time as described in Scripture. So, I mean, I guess it's a dream of mine that as I try to envision heaven, existence with God forever, that flying would be a component of it. Maybe that's just a a wishful hope, but I think it would be. But you talked Mm -hmm. about the owl and how the owl is capable of swooping in order to see his prey. He has Mm -hmm. exquisite eyesight, and this is what helps him to find his prey so that he can eat and sustain Mm -hmm. himself. One of the areas of research that I'm conducting here at MTSU, along with students and have been so for a couple years, is owl feather biomimicry. With the belief that that God built specific things into into DNA, Mm -hmm. the author of that, code uh, would be the God of the universe and to have specific functions and specific times and specific places. God built the ability for certain types of owls to fly very quietly, and they have characteristics that enable them to fly virtually silently such that their prey does not know what's about to happen until the, the talons are sinking in. The barn owl, the great gray owl, they have their big primary flight feathers out towards the wingtips. They have characteristics that are on the leading edge of those feathers. It's very much a comb-like fringe, much like your eyelashes. And on the upper surface of those feathers, it's very much a hairy kind of porous feel, kind of like your eyebrows. And then on the trailing edge of those feathers, it's downy and tufted. And those three characteristics unique to those types of owls enable them to fly very quietly. And so seeing that in nature, Much like aviation has always done, we see something, we try to copy it. Oftentimes it works. Um, I've been able to copy those characteristics from owl feathers into small unmanned aircraft propellers and rotors, drone propellers and rotors, and reduce the noise of those propellers and or rotors. And we continue to try to optimize those modifications to make them more effective. Another type of research in which you are involved is airline food and how it Mm. tastes. Could Mm -hmm. you expand on that whole area of study? Professors in the agribusiness here at MTSU and the newly formed fermentation science have recognized in current literature that there is a taste perception degradation at higher altitudes, specifically in airlines. So when you fly on a commercial airline, you may be 30 to 40,000 feet high at an altitude where there is not enough pressure to give you enough O2 to live. So the airline cabins themselves are pressurized to allow enough pressure to push the O2 from the air into your lungs. And it simulates being at an altitude anywhere from 5,000 to 8,000 feet up, still fairly high altitude, but low enough physiologically that you have enough O2 in your lungs to breathe and to live. However, it's still high enough that the taste perception in our tongues is degraded. From the research, salty and sweet taste perception starts to go down. So foods won't taste as sweet. Foods won't taste as salty as they would at lower altitudes where we where we live normally. So that might lead to the food being oversalted, maybe oversweetened to try to get the taste up. And this professor in these in this other department had the idea, what if we could modify foods? without oversalting or oversweetening such that they would still have the same taste but still be 
healthy. When this professor, when I heard him describing us, I said, well, we can help in the airspace department because I had recently obtained through a grant two devices known as reduced oxygen breathing devices. These are boxes that had been developed by the U.S. Navy, patented, and then sold from a company called Enveronics, where they take in gases O2, N2, and breathing air. Mm -hmm. They mix the gases in the appropriate mixture. You breathe those gases through a mask, a military-style flight mask, and it simulates the amount of O2 you would get if you were at altitudes between zero and 40,000 feet. The benefit of that for pilots, the reason why we, we have the device is why I wrote the grant, was that we could train our pilots in our department, one of our six concentrations is professional pilot, we could train those students who are working to be commercial pilots to experience the effects of a condition known as hypoxia, where you don't have enough O2, you start to lose cognition, you start to lose sensation, and eventually, if you stay in that condition long enough, you'll pass out and you'll die. We want to train students to recognize their specific individual symptoms of hypoxia, so that if they ever see those symptoms in real life, they can take corrective action and save themselves and their entire passenger flight. And one of those symptoms is food just doesn't taste the same. That, that's one of the things that comes up, but that, that happens before hypoxia necessarily sets in. So hypoxia is more for pilot training, but we could simulate being at altitude, the altitudes where you would be in a commercial flight, five to 8,000 feet. And you can do that safely and more cost-effectively on the ground with this device than you could by actually taking participants up in a research project in the air where they have to get the effects of the normal pressure drop and do the taste testing. So we are working right now where we're going to do a comparison between actually taking individuals up in a plane to an altitude and then doing a test where it's a simulated altitude with the reduced oxygen breathing device on the ground and to see if there's a taste perception difference between the two scenarios. Then we could verify, yeah, we can use this box. It's accurate enough to do all participants this way. And then food modifications would take place. And then we do taste testing with participants on the ground cheaply, safely, with the ROBDs as opposed to having to fly everyone, mm -hmm. which is very expensive. And here we've been blaming the airlines all this time. For I suppose. The taste of airline food. <laughs> not their fault. <laughs> oh, not, not necessarily their fault. Let's say that. Okay. Nate, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be right back. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. Two MTSU professors and their students have been helping indigenous filmmakers tell their stories and share their efforts to save their Amazon rainforest, and it's led to recognition and funding for the filmmakers from a respected source, the National Geographic Society. The organization presented Pati, a member of the Kayapo people in northwest Brazil, and his colleagues with nearly $70,000 to move ahead on their project, called Indigenous Filmmaker Warriors in Defense of Biocultural Conservation. 
MTSU video and film professor Paul Chilson, sociology and anthropology professor Richard Pace, and their students have been joining the Kayapo for nearly four years, and Chilson says the adventures have been an amazing experience for everyone involved. The Kayapo are really interesting people. They want to speak to an outside world in a language that that outside world understands. Cinematic language or language of the screen is a language that is a global language. And that's kind of the push that we are trying to get into the the stream of their life so they can adopt what they need and adapt it to their ways and be able to communicate to the outside world in a way that's meaningful and impactful. That's what we hope for the students also. They come at this with what they know, they come at it with what they're told by their professors, but then there's the actuality of the way they experience things on the ground, and then they come to a new plateau of understanding. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.